Welcome to the sermons of Steve Galloway, pastor of First Baptist Church, Macon, Mississippi. Let us join together and study God's Word and apply it to our hearts so that we may learn His truths and live faithful, obedient lives. May God bless our time together. Well, let's look at our passage. It's found in Revelation chapter 13, verses 1 through 10. Revelation chapter 13, verses 1 through 10. A little bit past the halfway mark of Revelation, and we're getting really into that second part of the tribulation called the Great Tribulation. So allow me to read this passage. Revelation 13, verses 1 through 10. And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and his horns were ten diadems. And on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth was like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him power in his throne and great authority. I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. They worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who is able to wage war with him? There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies, and authority to act for forty-two months was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God, to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. It was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. All who dwell on the earth will worship him, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. So, so far in Revelation, we've basically been kind of focused on Satan, that great red dragon, also called the serpent of old, Satan and the devil. And so far we have basically seen him actively forcing against the inhabitants of the earth during the tribulation. Our main focus has been during the first half of the tribulation. During that time we saw the the seven seals broken and catastrophes happening, earthquakes, uh, all sorts of different things happening upon the earth because of the sinfulness of man. We've, we've seen the uh, seven trumpets or heard the seven trumpets uh, being also releasing more catastrophes upon the earth. And now we see Satan and his evil forces coming to their, their kind of their climax. And what we know from history, from reading some of the prophecies, and also from what we will also still can understand through this book of Revelation, the first half of the tribulation, the first three and a half years, Satan, through his emissaries, basically had made a, a, a pact of peace throughout pretty much the world. And so this peace was, you know, you trust me, you follow me, and I will keep everything in peace. Well, if you look, there's something called the Pax Romanus under the Roman Empire. The Roman Caesars 
always wanted peace throughout the land. Now, the Roman Empire was vast, and so they basically had emissaries. They had different rulers in different providences and things like that. And their whole purpose was to keep peace, regardless of how they did it. Now, if you remember, Herod was, quote, the king of, of the Jews. He was over the, the Palestinian area. And if you remember, he was doing his best to keep peace with the Jews. And the Jews would basically threaten him from time to time and say, if you don't do what we want you to do, then we will buck you, we will cause a riot, we will cause unpeaceful things to happen here, and then you will lose face with Caesar. That's why Herod did so many building programs for the Jews. He, he, he expanded their temple, Herod's temple, and many other things. And so keeping peace is something that mankind has always wanted. Now, is there ever going to be true peace on earth? Not until Jesus finalizes everything at the end of Revelation. That's the only time that there will be true peace. So we cannot expect peace. There are always wars going on somewhere in our world. And we as the United States seem to be, you know, at least somehow connected with most of the wars that go on. So, you know, peace is something that's really, uh, does not really exist. But for about three and a half years, Satan, through his emissaries, will will pretty much have a pact of peace. And he's controlling things here on earth so that it will appear that there is peace. But here, as we move into that second half of the tribulation that we identify as the Great Tribulation, we're going to see an elevation of evil. Now, if you look at some of the Old Testament prophecies and you look at what took place, uh, there's something called the... uh, Desolation of uh, abomination of desolation. And basically, that's when Satan's beast will desecrate the temple. He will offer an idol in the middle of the temple, and he will sacrifice to that idol, and he will proclaim himself as God and force everyone to worship him. So, this, what is taking place here, is kind of the foretelling of that taking place. So, What we see is that even though all these things are happening, the great tribulation is beginning, all this evil is just permeating the entire world, we must understand God's still in control. He allows these things to happen for a reason. So if you look at Revelation chapter 12, verse 17, So the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children, who kept the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Satan is now turning his attention to those who refuse to worship him, those who have surrendered their lives to the Lordship of Christ. So now we know that we're moving from that first half to the second half of the tribulation. We know that uh, Satan uh, is, he's been cast out of heaven for eternity. He will never be able to have that access before God to to bring accusations against us. And so now his total focus is on the people of the earth. So we look at uh, verses 1 and 2. The dragon, Satan, stood on the sands of the seashore, and he's waiting for someone to come out of the sea. Then I, John, saw a beast coming out of the sea, and then he gives a description. 
This beast has ten horns, seven heads, and on the horns were ten diadems or crowns, and on his head were blasphemous names. Now we look at those and we say, that's a weird looking creature. Ten horns, seven heads, and ten crowns on the horns. But then he also says, and the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like a, those of a bear, and his mouth was like the mouth of a lion, and the dragon, or Satan, gave him, the beast, his power, and his throne, and great authority. So, John, primarily, his visions have been from heaven. Some say that John is now standing on the seashore seeing these things, but he could easily be seeing these things from heaven. So, there's really no worries that where John is, what he is seeing is here on earth, and he is seeing Satan standing at the seashore, and this beast who is the Antichrist. Let's just go ahead and identify him. This beast is the Antichrist. So, what do these descriptions mean about this beast, this Antichrist? Well, there's been debate about it, because these, these descriptions, you could, you could read anything into them that you want to. But, let's just go back to what we have already been told through God's Word. Daniel chapter 7, verses 2 through 8. Daniel had a vision very much like this. Hundreds, well, we don't know how many years before. I mean, it's been, goodness, probably 250, 2,500 years, 2,700 years since Daniel had these visions. It's been a long time. And we don't know when the tribulation is going to be. But Daniel said, I was looking in my vision at, by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Now, Daniel sees four beasts instead of one beast with four characters. Same thing, same description. Listen. And four great beasts were coming up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had its wings of an eagle. I kept looking until the wings were plucked, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind also was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, resembling a bear. And it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. After this I kept looking, and behold, another one, like a leopard, which has on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I kept looking in the night vision, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong. And it had large iron teeth, and it devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder uh, with its feet. And it was, given, it, it was different from the beast in that it had ten horns. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came out up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the man of a, eyes of a man, and a mouth uttering great boasts. So now Daniel sees four beasts instead of one beast with four characters. The descriptions are the same: the lion, the bear, and the leopard. Well, what we know is that Daniel was describing four different empires that would have rule and reign over Jerusalem. The first one, the one that looked uh, like a 
like a lion was Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon. You remember the Babylonians conquered the southern kingdom of Israel. That was where Jerusalem was located. So Babylon was the first one described as the four empires that had rule over God's people and God's city of Jerusalem. Now, the Babylonian kingdom started to fall apart, and the Medo-Persian empire came in, who were represented as the bear, which devoured its opponents. So the second empire is the Medo-Persians. Then the third, represented as a leopard, was the Greek, under Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great uh, basically extended an entirely huge empire, basically from Greece uh, to the west, all the way to India to the east, all the way south through Egypt. And so he, he really had the first large major empire. And under that, uh, he also uh, reigned over Jerusalem. So he is represented as the leopard. And notice he, the leper has four heads. Well, after Alexander, he had four generals that succeeded him. So once Alexander died, then his kingdom or his empire was basically divided between his four uh, generals. So then the monstrous beast with the iron teeth, the ten horns, and the boastful little horns speaking blasphemies represents the Roman Empire that overtook Greece. And if you look at the Roman Empire, if you've ever studied it, Caesar could not rule over everything by himself, so he divided up into providences or districts or whatever you want to call it, just like here was over Palestine, and he would have different people under him. Uh, basically, we see the ten horns representing ten different regions uh, that people would be under. And so we look and we see, okay, if that represents Rome, then we assume that this beast represents Rome. But notice that one of the heads on this beast had a wound that looked as if it had been slain. Notice, very important, verse 3. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain. Didn't say that he, it had been slain, but it looked as if it had been slain. And his fatal wound was healed. Now what we see is that Rome, we know, fell apart. It disintegrated. It no longer is. There's no longer a Roman Empire, correct? So it died. But what most believe is that this empire during the tribulation, during the Great Tribulation, will mimic very much the Roman Empire. So it's like a rebirth of the Roman Empire. And there will be ten nations that will be under the rule of this Antichrist. This Antichrist will have rule over ten different nations. That's basically the ten different horns. Each horn is given a, a crown, which basically means it's been given the authority from Satan, from the Antichrist. And so we see that the seven heads, probably, we don't know for sure, but more than likely, there have been seven major uh, ruling parties that have been over God's people, not just Israel, but God's people. We go all the way back to Egypt, and the children of Israel were in captivity, and then once they got into the uh, promised land, 
the northern kingdoms were attacked and conquered by Assyria. Then the southern kingdom were conquered by Babylon and taken into captivity. And then those who were in captivity were also conquered by the Medo-Persians. Under the Medo-Persians, they were allowed to return to, to Jerusalem, rebuild the city and the walls. And then Alexander the Great, he, if y'all remember just a couple of weeks ago on Sunday morning, I talked about him, comparing him with, with Jesus, the two different conquerors. So Alexander the Great comes, and he is now over Israel. He is now over Palestine. He's now over Jerusalem. And then, that's the Greek. And then we move into the Roman Empire that also had rule and reign over, over God's people. So that's six. Now the seventh is this new ruler that we find here in, in Revelation. So that's seven different groups that will have rule and reign over God's people. So that kind of give you a picture of who this Antichrist is. You know, all these weird things are just representatives of the power that he has. The, the, the reign of his power over ten kingdoms, uh, who he basically gives power to, to exercise his authority. Uh, he looks as if he's been slain. I believe that it's basically saying, okay, the old Roman Empire has died, and now it's being brought back to life. Uh, don't know if it'll be called Roman Empire. I doubt it will be, but uh, basically it's that same principle of one centralized government over all the known world at that time. And so we look at that, and he's given a mouth to blaspheme. Well, Satan's been doing that forever. So this is nothing new. It says that um, in verse 5, there was given him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies, and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. And he opened his mouth and blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his temple and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Well, he can no longer go to heaven, so now he can only curse God from the earth, and he does all he can. In other words, he takes the Lord's name in vain. He curses all those who have surrendered their lives to Christ, who are now in heaven with the Lord. So, well, who are the saints? Let's look at verses 7 and 8. And it was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. All who dwell on the earth will worship him, everyone whose name has not been written in the, from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. So, if you remember from our last couple weeks, I know we didn't meet here uh, this past Wednesday because of our uh, Knoxby Fellowship uh, meeting. But basically what we have seen is that God took the sealed Jews, the 144,000 that he had sealed, and he allowed them to flee into the wilderness. We don't know if that's physical, that they have found a place of refuge, that God is taking care of them and protecting them and feeding them, or if he's just supernaturally protecting them in their nations. I kind of believe that they have a place of refuge, personally. But anyhow, you got to go back to uh, Revelation chapter two, 12, verse 17. I've already read it once. 
So the dragon was enraged with the woman who is Israel. The dragon Satan, the woman is Israel. So the Satan is enraged with the woman Israel and went off to make war with the rest of her children since he cannot harm those who are now in this protected wilderness who kept the commandment of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So there are people on the earth who are saved. There are people who have bowed before Jesus as Savior and Lord of their lives, and they now keep the commandment of God. They are obedient to God, and they hold to the testimony of Jesus. They follow Jesus as their Savior and Lord. So who are these? Well, we know that the 144,000 Jews have been sealed, and they're now in protection. Uh, Basically, at this time, the two witnesses that we dealt with a few weeks back have been slain. They've come back to life, and then they've ascended back into heaven. So those have been the witnesses for the people to hear the gospel. And so these who are still on earth, who keep the commandment of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus, are those who have come to faith during the first half of the tribulation. Now, during the first half of the tribulation, they really did not have any problems doing so. There's probably some persecution going on, obviously, but it is only now that it becomes a life or death situation. So, but notice in verse 7, it says, well, I'm sorry, verse 8, whose names has not been written Every, those, everyone will worship him except for those whose names have not been written uh, from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. So who are those who are from the foundation of the world whose names are written in the book of life? Well, first of all, let's go to the word, phrase from the foundation of the world. How long has your name been written in the book of life? Since the day that you came to Christ as Savior and Lord? Well, according to this, our name's been written in the book of life since the foundation of the world. Now, does anybody here have the mind of Christ or the mind of God? God himself, through his scriptures, tell us that our thoughts are not his thoughts, his, his ways, his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. We cannot comprehend the way that God functions, the way God thinks. Was Jesus a plan B or plan C that, you know, all the things in the Old Testament didn't work out quite right, so God said, okay, let's try something different. Let let me send Jesus and get this thing back on track. No, Jesus has been in the heart and mind of God. He is God. He has been a part of the original plan since eternity past. It's always been there. And so, I've shared with y'all many times, God is all-knowing. That means he knows everything from what we call the beginning of time, which is creation. He knows everything that's happening right this moment, and he already knows what will happen. How do we know this? We're studying the book of Revelation. This has not yet happened, but he's describing it in detail. So God knows everything that will have ever happened in all of human history, beginning to end. So he already knows who will accept him, and their names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life from the foundations of the world. Now, whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life? 
those who accept his son Jesus as Savior and Lord. Well, we wonder sometimes, well, how about those before Jesus came to earth? Well, we look at God's uh, understanding at that time. He basically says, you must believe what I've already shared, that there will be a Messiah coming. And even all the way back to Abraham, before we had the times of the prophets, God basically says, you trust me and believe, and it will be counted unto you as righteousness. And that's what the scripture said. And Abraham believed God, and God considered it righteousness on his behalf. And so, again, we don't have the mind of God. I will get more into that next week. But we look and we see that God is not protecting those who are his, but they will have the strength not to worship this beast, this Antichrist. And so notice again, the Antichrist, this beast, it will be given to him to make war with the saints, God's saints, the, the saved, and to overcome them. That overcoming does not mean that he will win them over, that he will force them to worship him. We'll see very clearly as we go along through our study that he will annihilate them. He will give them a choice, bow down before me or die. You know, if somebody held a, a sword to my neck and said either you know, worship Satan or die, I'd say go ahead and cut. But it's going to be a little more difficult when you're a parent and your kids are standing there and they, he says, worship me or they die. We're going to get into other things that they will use to try to force others to recant their faith. So we look and we see that this beast, this Antichrist, will have a tremendous power. Why? Let's just be honest. The large majority of the people on the earth will not be saved. The large majority are following the trend. They will do whatever is best for them. They've enjoyed two and a half, three and a half years of relative peace. They probably have gained and wealth and power and all sorts of different things. They've enjoyed life on earth during this time because Satan has made it easy for them. And now when it comes to the point where his antichrist, this beast comes, and he says, all you got to do is follow me. Worship me, worship the red dragon, who is basically the anti-God, and I'm the anti-Christ. If you'll worship us, then we'll make it easy on you. And we'll get into that next week, how they make it easy on you. So we look and we see that there are those who have not had their name written in the book of life, the lost. Those are the ones who are who are excluded from, the, uh, from Satan's or the demons, the, the beast's uh, war against them. Then verses 9 and 10 basically say, if anyone has an ear, let them hear. In other words, God says, he's telling the church, the churches during John's time, see, these, this, this letter this book of Revelation is being sent to the churches in Asia Minor. And he said, you need to listen. Are you hearing this? Anyone who has an ear, let them hear. 
So what is he really saying? First of all, he's reminding us that things are going to get bad. There is going to be a time of judgment at the end. There is going to be a time of uh, tribulation, and there will be a time of great tribulation. But again, it is all under God's control. God is going to allow some gruesome things to take place. The gospel will still be shared, but unfortunately, I'm afraid that too many will not accept it, and those who do accept it are basically signing a death sentence. Now, this won't be really too unfamiliar to the people that John is writing to. John probably writes this in the latter part of the first century, somewhere between 70 and 90 AD, and Persecution against Christianity is already growing by leaps and bounds. I've done a study on this, and according to some of the early church fathers, the historians, by the year 325 A.D., there's an estimated 2 million Christians that died a martyr's death. So in basically less than 300 years from the time of Christ, 2 million people. Now, in today's day and age, 2 million doesn't sound a lot. But in the population during Jesus' day, that's a lot. And that means, first of all, that in 300 years, far more than than 2 million people find salvation, which is wonderful. But unfortunately, many who come to Christ do so by signing their own death certificate. Because they know that as soon as the local government finds out that they're worshiping God through Christ instead of Caesar or whoever the local government figure is, then they will be executed. So Caesar considered himself to be God and expected people to bow before him and to worship him. Just like the Antichrist will expect people to bow before him and worship him. Jesus tells us that we must take up our cross and follow him. Now a lot of people don't really know what that means. They think that taking up the cross just means, well, there's a burden to bear in life. And a lot of people have kind of laughed about it. I had a pastor and I knew his heart, so I knew he was using it as as a joke, but he and his wife took a bunch of us who were newly married on a retreat, and we we rented a cabin up in the mountains, and we got up in the morning, and everybody was trying to get ready, and he comes walking in and says, is the coffee ready? His wife says, nope, it's percolating, but it's not ready yet. He goes, oh, this is the cross I must bear. We knew he was teasing. Obviously, that's not a cross that you have to bear. But what is the cross? Well, if you look at early Christianity, if you look at Christianity in the persecuted world around us, it means being willing to die at any moment for your faith. That's what it means. So when we say that we're going to take up our cross and follow him, It means we will follow him regardless of the cost. Now, I've shared this many times. We live in the Bible Belt, if not the belt buckle of the Bible Belt. 
we're probably in the safest place in the entire world to be a Christian. Would you agree with that to, to a large degree? It's going to be rare for any of us to truly be persecuted, to, for our lives to be at risk for proclaiming Christ. Now, you go to North Korea, that's a different story. You go into parts of China, that's a different story. You go into a number of other nations, and it's a different story. And I read a, uh, a devotion every morning, it's called Standing Strong Through the Storm, and it deals with the persecuted church around the world. And there are horror stories of what people go through simply because they worship Jesus. So the saints during the Great Tribulations will face this. Either bow down and worship the beast and take his mark in order to survive or die as a witness of Christ. There's a beautiful passage found in Psalms chapter 116, verse 15. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones, his saints. So we need to understand that if it even means death to follow Christ, we need to be willing to take up that cross and follow him. So may we continue to live each day with that type of commitment. Because those who are of the faith in the great tribulation, they'll be living according to that. They'll be taking up their cross daily and following Jesus even to death. On that note, let's close with a time of prayer. Dear Lord, we are so thankful that we have you as our rock, our fortress, the one that we trust in all things, Lord, great and small. Lord, you take care of our smallest needs and our greatest needs. Lord, you are the great healer, forgiver, sustainer of life. Lord, our life here is very fragile. You say this basically uh, here today and gone tomorrow just like a flower that withers out in the field. Lord, help us to understand that the life that we have here on earth is just but a, a glimpse of what our eternity will be like. Well, we cannot even comprehend what it will be like to be with you for the rest of eternity. Lord, help us to understand that you are in control, that you love us, that you desire your will to be done through us, whether it's a good situation or bad. Lord, may we even be bold enough to say, like uh, the apostles, we count it as a privilege to suffer for Christ. Well, we may not ever suffer in the area that we live in. Lord, let that never keep us from being bold in our faith to share the love of Christ wherever we go. Lord, even if we get ridiculed or do face some kind of persecution, may we count it all joy that we do. Lord, guide us as we leave this place to be filled with your spirit, to work in us and through us to do your good and acceptable and perfect will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.